0: Oh, I mean, let me almost forgot. Pull out one of these. They so yeah, I'm mixing it up. Let's see what we got. Okay. All right. So this one says uh, How does one reconcile getting ashes with Matthew 6, chapter 6, verses 5 through 8 and 16 through 21? Luckily, I have all of the Bible memorized, so I know what all of that is. <laughs> but I do remember, this is the text that we usually read on Ash Wednesday. This is the one where Jesus said, beware of practicing your piety before others. And don't be like hypocrites who like to pray out loud and on the street corner so they'll be seen by everybody and who have a parade whenever they put their offering in the offering plate, that kind of a thing. And so how do we reconcile that where Jesus says, no, keep your faith secret. You know you can pray in your room by yourself with the door closed, and God in heaven will hear you. Be assured of, uh, assured of that. Um, yet we read this passage on Ash Wednesday, when many of us will receive ashes and a cross on our forehead for everybody to see. So how do we reconcile Jesus' words about not being so out there with your faith uh, with this um, practice of carrying ashes? Uh, and I think, uh, let's see if I can tie this in. Nope, not confident I could just weave it into the sermon. So I'm going to answer it separately again. Uh, and so what I think is happening here is Jesus is not saying keep every aspect of your faith life a secret. Pray so nobody knows that you ever pray. and when you fast. Don't let anybody know. And don't do anything that anybody can see. I don't think it's that i think what jesus is talking to is our insecurities that we want to have that acclamation and be affirmed by other people so when we pray people can go wow you know mildred has such a wonderful prayer i wish i could pray like mildred she's amazing and you know put her up on a pedestal sorry i'm picking on you <laughs> know uh, or you know just that kind of a thing and what Jesus wants us to know is that God sees us, and every good work that we do is seen by God and acknowledged by God, that we don't need to have a parade and uh, act out on those insecurities, that we can have that trust, oh, there's the connection, about trust and faith that God does see these good works, and that they are being made into a part of God's kingdom, and are a part of that restoring of God's kingdom on us. So, that's my sermonette on uh, Matthew 6, and why we get ashes, and why it's okay. I So, uh, getting into this reading, we're about Nicodemus and his visit with Jesus at night. A friend of mine jokes and calls this the Nick at Night reading, because Nick comes at night, right? Um, Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus, he is a leader, a religious leader. He's worked his whole life to get to that position of being a religious leader, of being the one that people turn to because he has the answers. When people are wondering about who God is and what God would desire in their life and what is a good prayer practice to take on and what piece of scripture speaks to this challenge in my life and our world, Nicodemus had people who came to him. And it took time to get there. It took his whole life. It took hard work. It took dedication It took years and years of studying Scripture, of debating with friends and colleagues and other rabbis about what the meaning of these commandments are and who God is and who God has called us to be. He studied with each learned teacher more wise than the last one until finally, suddenly, he was the leader. And he was the one with followers, and he was the one people recognized as wise and smart. And a source of information and a way to boast the faithfulness of them. Nicodemus was a leader. He had things figured out. And many of us, I won't say all of us, would like to be leaders too. I remember when I was in elementary school, maybe second grade, of all people, it was my second grade gym teacher uh, who would shout at the kids and he would say, are you a leader or are you a follower? And in our little eight year old voices, we would shout, I'm a leader. I don't think we knew what we were talking about. I'm not totally sure why the gym teacher had us do it. But I think if I had to guess, it's because we value us and our young people have those leadership qualities in the sense of that they are in control of their lives, that they're not going to fall under bad influences and be a follower like other people. We want to have control of our life, to be able to take a step toward the goals that we have, to make our lives better, to get stronger. And sometimes we want to be a leader for good reasons, and sometimes it's not so good reasons. We want people to look up to us and say, wow, speaking of Matthew 6, wow, they pray so well. They are such an amazing prayer. And wow, they are so generous. And wow, I want to be a leader like them. And we get to say, yes, it's a matter of pride and hubris. And say, aren't I great? And don't you know it? But I think that Nicodemus, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't think that he became a religious leader because he wanted to have the accolades of his friends and his family. He wanted to be looked up to and put on a pedestal and practically worshipped for what a great leader he was. I think that Nicodemus became a religious leader because he loved God. Because he was hungry for God's presence and always wanted to learn more. And then to share that knowledge and that wisdom with others that he believed that with every um, debate that he had, an interpretation that he worked out about God's commands and about who God is and who God called us to be, it was a step closer toward understanding God, a step closer toward becoming closer with God in a very real sense of the word. That's why he finds the opportunity to talk to Jesus, to get him alone for a moment at night. So he can ask him some questions so he can grow in that knowledge and that wisdom and that understanding and just get a little bit closer with God. I'm sure that Nicodemus has some burning questions to ask Jesus. And so he approaches Jesus and he says, teacher, rabbi, we know that you come from God because no one can do the signs that we do apart from the presence of God. He recognizes that Jesus in turning water to wine and the way he preaches and the way it pierces our heart and convicts us and also emboldens us at the same time, the way that he teaches is one with authority, like he knows what he's talking about, like so many people just don't convince us. That Jesus talks about the old truths of God in a new way that transforms our hearts and our minds. He knows that there's something special in Jesus, something God is in Jesus, but he can't quite figure it out. And he's got to have some questions for Jesus. But notice that Jesus doesn't let Nicodemus ask one question of him. He doesn't even get that far. Plenty of other people get the opportunity to get some clarification on a commandment of God or a teaching from Scripture or something like that. People can ask Jesus, uh, how often should I forgive my neighbor if Scripture tells me to forgive my neighbor? How often is enough? Who exactly is my neighbor if I'm supposed to love my neighbor? And which of all the commandments is the greatest commandment? Nicodemus gets to ask none of that. Jesus stops him before he can begin. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, leader, religious leader, who's got it all figured out, who has worked hard and has his life orderly and put together, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. Nicodemus is shocked at this. And he says to Jesus, how can this be? How can it be possible that someone, after having grown old, can be born again. Could someone go back in their mother's womb and be born a second time? And I think, unfortunately, we treat Nicodemus, frankly, as though he was stupid. And he's not. Nicodemus knows the difference between a figure of, figure of speech and a literal declaration. He's no literalist. He, he understands what a metaphor is. He doesn't actually think that Jesus is telling him that he has to physically be born a second time. Nicodemus is so shocked, is so disoriented by Jesus' declaration that you have to be born again. Because he says, how can someone after growing old be born again? Or in other words, why would anyone with any kind of sensibility voluntarily do that? Who would want to start over? Nicodemus knows better than most. He spent his whole life growing in wisdom and stature, and gathering followers to himself, accumulating wealth and now, excuse me, uh, wisdom and knowledge. He's grown closer and closer to God with every new revelation throughout his life, every prayer that he's memorized, every scripture verse that he's memorized, every act of interpretation of God's word that he's embodied. And now Jesus says, You want to enter the kingdom of God? Throw all that away. Start over. Be born again like a vulnerable infant. Start from scratch. No wonder that Nicodemus is so shocked, so disoriented by this declaration. And I think most of us would be too. Because a lot of us believe that. How we get close to God depends on what we do, about how faithful you are, about how many times a day you pray, about how much money you put in the offering plate, about how many old ladies you help cross the street, about how many good deeds you accumulate, whether or not they outweigh the good column over the bad column. If we do all these things and we memorize scripture and we're good enough, each of those is a step closer toward getting closer and closer to God. And yet Jesus says, no. The way you enter the kingdom of heaven is not by taking step by step through every act of piety and faith. The way you enter the kingdom of heaven is by being born into it. That it's a complete gift of grace. It's that God wanted to have a child and that child is you and wanted to give you life in God's kingdom. And that we have been given the gift of faith. Which is trust. Like the trust call. To trust that God actually cares for us. That God's going to take care of us. Unfortunately, I think we take this idea of faith and we turn it into a good work. Something that we have to achieve on our own in order to make God beholden to us so that we can get through those pearly gates. <laughs> We even take the idea of it like we have to come up with the right formula about what's the right thing to believe about Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. And if we figure it all out and we pray the right prayer and we do the right thing, then God is beholden to us, contractually obligated to let us in the gates of heaven. And that's not how God works, but it's grace. It is a gift that we have been saved from the power of sin and death and that God is at work in our lives. Have you ever received a tract? A piece of paper that's maybe put into your hand as you step off of the bus or shoved under your windshield wiper of your car or maybe you're scrolling through your Facebook feed and you see something? Usually they're a turn or burn kind of a message. If you died tonight and you opened your eyes, would you be in heaven or would you be in hell? And they usually go on to describe do you have the right belief? Do you believe, and it goes through, that we are sinful and we need to be saved and we can't save ourselves from our sins? And do you believe that Jesus was given to us by God to die as a sacrifice so that we might be saved from our sins? If so, pray this prayer and God will be contractually uh, obligated to save you from your sins, to save you from the power of death and raise you to new life. And usually it's a specific prayer about uh, called the sinner's prayer, and I won't get into all of that. One of the verses that usually appears on these tracts is the familiar John 3.16. For God so loved the world that God gave the only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. And these tracts really lean into that or perish. That if you don't believe in Jesus and if you don't say it in the right way and you don't believe the right specific things, then you don't get to go. Then you're not saved. But the irony of it all, if you're not born again, this belief that if you're not born again, then you don't get to go into heaven. Then is that it is something that these tracts usually assume that being born again is something that we can control. is something that we can figure out work out in our minds and make it right. Come up with the right formula to say. But when you stop and you think about being born again, like being born the first time, the baby that's born doesn't have a whole lot of say in when they are born and how they are born. The baby didn't decide when it would be conceived. The baby didn't, isn't sitting inside of the womb of their mother and has a little wall calendar and is... Crossing off the days as they get closer and closer to the due date, just ready to go, saying goodbye to the womb. No, the baby does absolutely nothing. The baby is just born, and that's where faith comes in—the faith that saves. Because the baby that is born, that infant, comes out vulnerable. If you've seen a newborn, you know that they can barely lift their head let alone take care of themselves, protect themselves, provide for themselves. And yet there's a sort of faith, a trust, that the mother of the child, the parents of the child, will take care of the child, make sure that they're safe, make sure that they don't get dropped. When that infant is born, they come out hungry unable to feed themselves, and yet there's this trust that they will be fed with their mother's milk. And the same is true for us when we're born again, that we can't feed ourselves with mercy and forgiveness and justice on our own, but it is God who feeds us with those things, and there's a trust that God will provide for us. The baby that is born, the infant, comes out not knowing a darn thing about this world, Unlike Nicodemus, who has spent his life learning and growing and learning and growing, the child that is born doesn't know up from down. And yet, that child is not the love that the parent shows to that child is not dependent on how much they know and how much they've accomplished and what they've figured out about their parent and all the rest. It is all grace, and there is trust that that child will be loved for and cared for by their by their mother. And the same is true for us when we're born again, that it's faith, that it's trust that saves us, trust that God already has loved us, cared for us, made us right, regardless of what we know or what we don't know, how much we've accomplished, how many little steps we've incremented and forward. That's not to say that we don't do good work, we don't help people out, we don't pray, we don't give alms and pray and fast, those typical Lenten disciplines. We do those things, but we do so not as leaders. First and foremost, we are followers, and we are followers of God and Christ Christ trusting that Jesus already has gone ahead of us, that we've been born into God's kingdom, and now we get to live into that kingdom, fighting for justice, fighting for right, welcoming others, doing prayers and offering gifts and all of those things, because God has already done it for us. We follow God in that, maybe like a toddler following after their parent. Nicodemus was a leader. He had it all figured out. And yet, Jesus told him, you have to be born again. Give it all up, everything that you've learned, everything that you've made for yourself. To give up that as your own. Instead, what saves you, what brings you into the kingdom of heaven, is the grace of being born again. Being birthed by the loving parent of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.